Welcome to Decision Space, a podcast about the decisions in games and the only podcast that takes place right here in the decision space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan. And I'm Jake. And we're so excited to be with you this week to be talking about The Fox in the Forest, a trick-taking game published by Foxtrot and Renegade Games. How are you doing this week, Jake? I am doing good. Happy that we're having some nice weather. Been getting outside more. So, you know, I'm feeling good. How about you? Yeah, same. I, I hadn't thought about the weather, but having the sunshine hit for the first time in like four months on the back of a pandemic, it's amazing how much just a little bit of sunshine can make you excited to to get out and move a little bit. Totally. Yeah. So let's get right into it. Do you want to do you want to kick it off with your synopsis this week? Sure. Um my synopsis for The Fox in the Forest is The Fox in the Forest is like a macaron, the kind of French <laughs> cook patisserie cookie that you get, the multicolored things, in that I think it's like really delightful, but ultimately not leaving me completely satisfied. Uh, and so to me, this is this is a delightful game, but it's just a six out of ten fascinating this could be an awesome episode i can't wait okay the fox in the forest is a masterpiece of game design that casts a spell on the classic trick-taking format transfiguring it into something fresh innovative and electric a perfectly balanced playstyle. fox in the forest approaches perfection and stands as an excellent example of making less more 10 out of 10 wow <laughs> i i love this game i think this game is like beyond brilliant but it so much aligns with my taste and i'm so excited that this is a six out of ten for you and a ten out of ten for me this is gonna be great i can't believe that yeah we did it we talked in earlier episodes about how we weren't sure when we were gonna find a game where we didn't totally align so so here it is all right yeah this is this is gonna be good yeah, so quick rundown. Fox in the Forest is a two-player trick-taking game. Um, it was, as I mentioned before, published by Foxtrot and Renegade Games in 2017. I think it was originally published by Foxtrot, and then Renegade picked it up. And it is designed by Joshua Burgel. I hope I pronounced your name right, Joshua, if you ever listen to this. Um, but it's it sort of does what I think a lot of people considered was the impossible in making a two-player trick-taking game interesting. And we always uh, do a rule synopsis to give you a little bit better sense for the game if you haven't played it. So I think we'll we'll hop into that now and, and send it over to, to the recorded rules overview. The Fox in the Forest is a storybook-themed trick-taking game for two players. Each round, players are dealt 13 cards from the game's 33-card deck, which itself is comprised of 11 cards ranging in value from 1 to 11, from three suits bells, keys, and moons. The cards not dealt to players are put into a face-down draw deck, and the top card of that is flipped over and represents the decree card for the round, the game's trump suit. Each round consists of 13 turns or tricks. Each turn, the player who won the last trick leads by playing a card from their hand. The opposing player must then play a card matching the suit on the card played by the lead player if they can, then the player whose card is of the highest rank and suit wins. The crux of the game lies in its scoring system. Each round, players must decide if they're trying to win tricks or lose tricks based on their hand of cards. If a player wins 0-3 to three tricks, they're considered humble and granted 6 points for the round. If they accomplish this, their opponent will have won between 10 and 13 tricks because of the zero-sum nature of the game's scoring, making them quote, greedy, meaning they'll receive 0 points for the round. If a player wins 7 to 9 tricks, then they're considered victorious and they'll receive 6 points. If this is the case, then their opponent will earn between 1 and 3 points for having been defeated. A game is played in full rounds until a player earns 21 points or more, and at the end of that round, the player with the most points wins. For one final twist, the game assigns unique powers to each of the odd value cards in the game. These cards have varying effects on play, such as making the losing player lead the next trick instead of the winning player, or allowing the player to manipulate the decree card. Trick-taking games can be a bit tricky to wrap your head around, so I definitely recommend taking a quick peek at the rules if trick-taking games are new to you, and just in general to help give you a better sense for how Fox in the Forest plays. So I think with that, you should have a fairly good sense of how the game plays. And if not, as we continue talking in this discussion, if you haven't played it before, I bet it'll 
it'll click for you as we go. But I wanted to kick things off, Jake, with just a discussion of sort of characterizing the decision space that this allows. And I think talking as much as we can about Fox in the Forest specifically, but contextualizing it, I think, within trick-taking games overall. And I think when I say that, one thing that I find really interesting about trick-taking games is generally they have that same structure of at the outset of every round, you have all of the decisions disposable to you at once that you're going to have for that round. You're dealt your hand of cards. Uh, In most trick-taking games, that's 13 cards, just given the way that the math works out. That's also 13 cards here in Fox in the Forest because of the way that they have shaped the game with the three suits. Um, And I personally think that that creates, in terms of the decision tree, it's very interesting because you start with this like very broad tree at the beginning that prunes down. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just to be transparent, I think I'm going to be really relying a lot on your expertise of trick-taking games in general. Um, so I've played Fox in the Forest a bunch uh, with my wife and primary gaming partner. Uh, I've also played The Crew a few times. Um, and, and that's like the bulk of my experience with trick-taking games. And those two are like notoriously like separate from traditional because Fox in the Forest is the two-player version of trick-taking and the crew is like the cooperative version of trick-taking so you know maybe I played like you know a, a round of like hearts or spades here or there but never you know with with that much enthusiasm or interest um so so yeah so like I I think people will be hearing a little bit of a difference in just sort of how we're coming to this um so with that said, to your question, I feel like the decision space is, while it's, you know, can be robust just in the number of cards at the beginning, like I feel like so much of what you're doing in the game is like dictated to you with the opportunities to influence, you know, uh, more intermittent throughout the play of the game. That's really interesting. So basically, you feel like your decisions are, because your decisions are limited to those 13 cards, and then Fox in the Forest does some things to invert that, that you feel like the game ends up being, there's lots of potential choices, but not a lot of interesting decisions in the way it plays out. I wouldn't I wouldn't say like not interesting uh, decisions, right? Like that's a totally different dichotomy from like the size of the decision space. But like, sure. I, I would say the decision space to me feels small. And I think largely because not only like when you're playing the game, you have to follow suit, right? Um, If you can. And so frequently, even though you have 13 cards at the beginning of a round, if you're not leading, for instance, you know, you really may only have, you know, two or three choices because those are the cards in the suit that you can play. So like the whole rest of your hand, you know, doesn't factor into that. Uh, And that's kind of like a repeating pattern throughout the play of the game. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I think breaking down a distinction between the leading and following decision spaces seems important because I totally agree that there's that, that switching of, okay, when I'm following my, my viable choices of the decision space is so much more limited, but I think that sometimes even then there's, especially in Fox in the Forest because of cards like uh, the witch, which acts as the trump suit even if it's not of the trump suit um or even the fox which lets you change the trump suit as you go gives you a lot of flexibility and making meaningful decisions in terms of timing is it the right time within this round for me to play this card to change the trump suit right like and and affect that power even on the follow and then when you're leading there's so many potential decisions that you have like Not that many games give you 13 potential different decisions that you can make at the outset. And even in viable decisions, depending on your hand, there might be 10 viable decisions. And that's a lot of decisions to make at the outset. In terms of a play experience and the shape of a game can take, that's, to me, it's interesting how you have this pruning effect as each round goes on. And I think as your decisions wean, the what could be in your hand Uh, becomes more clear, but because of the amount of uncertainty, the tension really does grow as the rounds go on. Sometimes more than others, some rounds can feel very rote and played out by the end, but others, it's so, as the decisions pair, the tension rises immensely. And I think that's partially why I love this game, is it can be so, so exciting to see how it plays out. 
Yeah. Okay. I hear you. I definitely want to reiterate that even when you're following and you're choosing between two cards, that can be really interesting and meaningful, especially as the uh, card powers, which we're going to get into all of them later on, are concerned. Um, But even when I'm leading the trick, I think just I'm perceiving the decision space maybe as smaller than you are. Mm. Because once, uh, and I'm reminded of our uh, conversation on Res Arcana a little bit, like once I've sort of initiated beginning to play out my hand, and maybe this is just like a me thing and I'm not playing the game right at all. But like typically I find myself like, okay, if I'm going to start with the blue suit, the keys or whatever in this game, I find myself like, blue 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 <laughs> right like i feel like i'm like going down that path i'm rarely like reevaluating all my options anew mm. you know in each subsequent trick interesting of the game so i i definitely see what you're saying and i think that there can for me there are definitely turns of the fox in the forest where things feel very rote but because trick taking games are fundamentally about information so i i am dealt a hand of information and then much of how i'm approaching playing the game is trying to get more information about what is in my opponent's hand so i can use that against them and exploit them by using the power of the trump suit to shape the overall results how i want them to be and i think Because of that, for me, every round, when I get more information, it changes how I might approach it in some way. And sometimes that information just confirms how I'm going to approach the hand. Like, yes, what I assumed would be that the shape of play I was going to take ends up being that. And sometimes I get information and it changes wildly. Or in the Fox in the Forest, my opponent will do something and change something about the game state that fundamentally alters how I have to approach it as well. And I don't, like you mentioned, we're going to get into all the cards at the end and go through their individual powers. So I think as much as possible, it's good that we save that. And I think that will be a really rich way to talk about the decisions in the game. But I guess really quickly too, you mentioned sort of your background with trick-taking games. So I feel like it would be helpful for the listeners to know my background with trick-taking games. Um, And I've come into trick-taking games mostly, growing up, I played a lot of card games, but my family didn't play a ton of trick-taking games taking games we played a lot of rummy but my wife loves trick taking games so she grew up playing them at camp um went through a phase where like every night before bed she would just play spades on her phone to go to sleep so she's like in terms of like her core game playing favorite is like trick taking games we play bridge sometimes so i'm very comfortable with trick taking games and i think i love them in part because she loves playing them so i definitely have played trick taking games a lot i don't know sorry for sort of shoving that in like a wedge after my last comment that you probably had a good response to and then I totally upended it but no I think I think that is uh really important information and probably gets perhaps to to some of our fundamental like differences in how this game strikes us um I so I have a question a follow-up question for you though uh which is how skill intensive do you think this game is like on the line between skill and luck. I think that this game is highly skill intensive. How skill intensive do you think it is? Yeah, I feel the same way. Like, you know, I I feel like obviously this is not a perfect information game. It's not chess. Like there are random elements that come up from the power and just the cards you are dealt. You know, I think that a, a better player at the game, almost regardless of the cards they're dealt, will be able to craft a winning hand yeah i i totally agree i feel like the amount of uncertainty in the game is almost perfect and i think that's one thing that i love about it because it gives you it gives players just enough information to have really meaningful decisions in my opinion at every turn but just enough uncertainty to make it still exciting so if if you totally knew what a trick-taking game where you have perfect information is not very interesting um there's games like bridge that play with that that idea a little bit so everyone has their own hand and that's a partnership game so if we played that together you always play with four players and there's one player it's a bidding game i'm not going to explain all of bridge but basically (laughs) one player's hand is open completely open information and they're sitting that turn out Mm. and their partner is playing their own hand and that hand so i think that the fox in the forest sort of takes a similar idea that both players have complete information and then they have not perfect information of what are in the seven card, the six cards in the deck, and then the, the one card that gets turned up as the Trump suit, the decree card. 
And then the woodcuts help you sort of mess with that information. And I think that for me is why the game comes alive. And maybe we can shift into different ways that we've characterized the decision space, sort of the emotional experience of the game. And I think for me, one of the reasons I love Fox in the Forest so much is because of the ability for a really bad hand to feel like a horrible, horrible gut punch or a really good hand to feel super triumphant. Um, there's just like feats that you can accomplish in this game that feel wonderful. Or there's there's certain cards that come, come down where you're just elated that it played out in the way that it did and it was completely unexpected. And I think for me, that's why this game goes from something like a nine to a 10. Mm. Yeah, I think, I think you're right on. The thing that's most fun about this game to me is is the sort of feeling derived from this like really simple like trick-taking game which is not something like when i hear trick-taking game that does not like excite me and I'm, I'm not i don't i'm you know that's how i'm coming to this it is not like oh this is going to be a high emotion game but fox and force really yeah. does infuse that it's amazing how often it comes down to the last card revealed uh you know being a swing of and we'll get into the scoring, which is, I think, phenomenal as, as a little preview. Um, and then that does so, the scoring does so much to really bring that alive where that last card can be, you know, the swing of six points for very frequently. Uh, and the other thing you said that I totally agree with, and I, I just love this about games in general, is when it presents like the opportunity to like achieve a perfect hand which is like totally attainable in this game, but like super hard. And that would be winning all the sevens and no other tricks. I'm, you know, I'm such a weirdo that like, I'll probably just keep playing this game until I pull that off. <laughs> even if I don't, yeah. even if I didn't like it that much, like it would keep me coming back just for that alone. Totally. I, yeah, the, the sort of, it's really interesting how there's like, there's core objectives based on the scoring system. And then there's like overarching meta goals of like, I accomplished this thing and it's a story that I'm going to tell someone about. The range of emotions that I feel while playing Fox and the Force or can feel really surprises me for a numbers on cards game with like less than 40 cards in it. Um, it gives the decisions that it invites you to make. I think I do feel cunning like a fox sometimes. Sometimes I feel so smart and clever in the way I play things out. Right? And like you can like break people's ankles in this game almost with the way that you play your hand out. Um, sort of like you might in basketball. And I oh think, my god! I can't! I can't believe you're making a basketball reference. I, I already have my pump fake reference lined up for later. <laughs> In this podcast or a different one? This podcast. Nice. Yeah, I have, I have a I have a pump fake analogy coming up later. Just. <laughs> And people have already been making fun of us in comments on this show for like how often we lean on sports analogies for like a <laughs> podcast. It's true, but it I don't know. I just feel like you really sports pull out some of the most uh like sort of electric moments in games, and I think that they make an easy graft onto games where you have moments that feel sort of electric like that. Yeah. So I don't know. In terms of decision spaces, like I loved Underwater Cities and I thought the decision space there was really rich. Um, but generally, I I almost feel like the decision space and the type of emotions that can be elicited are almost richer in Fox in the Forest. Like the range of things I might feel when I sit down to play Fox in the Forest on a purely emotional level are probably greater. And the intellectual stimulation isn't quite as high, but it's pretty close. And when I'm just trying to relax... I think that the pattern of playing out cards uh, can be really exciting. So I think I'd be curious what your take is. You sort of felt like it was kind of rote in you, how you play hand. So what I'm saying, is it just like what, like crazy to you? Like you can't believe that I'm talking about the game in this way? No, not at all. I, I, th I think that's like a very well put and a super compelling reason why, you know, this game is easy to recommend. And, you know, I think I think you're right. And I think a lot of people have that experience. What I will say, though, is because of the high skill level of this game, like this game is a lot closer to chess than it is to Uno <laughs> or yeah. something like that uh, for a simple card game. And you have to have you have to be functioning on the same level of strategic understanding to get anything out of this game. Yeah. And I think. For that reason, you know, if, if you're playing, you know, if chess is your main two-player game and you're playing with somebody and developing that skill at the same time and are always on an even level of playing, then I think everything you said 
of this game would also be true of chess, right? Like super high emotional bandwidth. But if one person is winning all the time, then that might not be, you're not likely to experience that same emotion, like scale of emotions. Like one person will be feeling good and one person will be feeling bad consistently. (laughs) And then the person feeling good starts to not feel as good about that. And that's kind of closer to my personal experience playing with my wife. Totally. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. And I can very much see how the game would fall flat then because the game doesn't give players a lot of tools. The the luck for all intents and purposes is very low. So in an unmatched, it's just so tough to even the playing field without like passing along strategy and sort of talking through how you're playing. And I can see how the game for a, a given pair of players would come to a logical conclusion sort of forever. Like one player will end up better for the most part. Mm, yeah. Okay. So I feel like that is the perfect moment to sort of shift over into the scoring system because it shapes so much about this game. Uh, we talked about it in the rules explanation, so we don't need to explore it too much in depth here. But do you want to talk about, you mentioned earlier, Jake, that you think the scoring system is the most important aspects of the game. Do you want to talk about sort of why that is and maybe couch that in the decision space itself to some extent? Man, I'll give it a shot. <laughs> see if I can. Um, yeah, so the reason, uh, I think the scoring system is easily my favorite part of the game. And I think the reason the scoring system works so well is because unlike most games where more points are strictly better, this allows the ability for you to try to do poorly. And if you're able to achieve that and, and gain only three tricks or less over the course of the 13 trick round, uh, that's actually the best possible outcome for you. Um, and the reason that makes the decision space so interesting to me is because there's always something in the back of your mind making you question, like, you know, it's not just a matter of, yeah, I'm doing really well and gaining a lot of tricks. You're always like, wait, am I doing too well in this moment? Like, do I need to find an opportunity to like subtly throw a trick to my opponent at this point in the game? Uh, or, or, you know, or is it already too late? Uh, so I think that, you know, just that little riff on a traditional scoring system, it, it just, you know, brings this game alive, both in terms of like how it actually works mechanically, but also to brings out so much of the emotional uh, resonance you were speaking to before. Yeah, definitely. I've heard people discuss the scoring system in the Fox and Four in the Forest as the game. And I think that that's a slight mischaracterization because I think it creates the game and the game being that every single trick you have to decide, am I trying to win tricks or lose tricks? At this exact moment. So the game of the Fox and Forest at its most basic level is trying to judge at this exact moment in the game, whether it's I've been dealt 13 cards and I'm trying to decide, am I trying to win here? Or am I trying to, am I trying to win the most tricks or not win tricks? Uh, your ability to evaluate that based on the cards in play, the information that you have, that becomes the game. And that's the core skill of the Fox in the Forest. And I think that's what makes it unique for me. And what makes it so interesting is because every single trick, every single round, you have to reevaluate yourself and ask yourself that. And then you also layered on top of that are saying, am I doing a good enough job of not communicating what I'm trying to do? Because you could really overplay your hand and end up in a position where like, oh no, they know I'm going for, I'm trying to get zero tricks they're they're going to start sandbagging and just force me to take tricks and I'm totally screwed. Totally. Yeah, and I think that also uh in not only are you trying to think about like what am I trying to do at this moment, but what am what is my opponent trying to do? Cuz it's very possible that at a certain point in the game you could be trying to lose tricks while your opponent is trying to win them and knowing that information, you know, can allow you to get just a little bit more value out of your hand or you know, if you Right, because you, your goals are actually aligned, but your opponent doesn't know that yet. Uh, so I think that's really interesting, and you know that also is what enables so much fun second guessing too. You know, so anyway, what, how does that strike you? No, I, I completely agree. I, I think the the sort of double think that it 
puts on top of the game and the potential for bluffing just makes the core loop of playing playing tricks more interesting because you're you're communicating more than just within any given trick itself and i think compounding with that the scoring system works really well in any given one round but the fact that you're playing to 21 and the way that the points are doled out uh, fixes a potential problem in the game, which is that at some point, you know who how the round is going to potentially play out. But I think that the way that the scoring system is designed and then adding in things like the treasure that can give you extra points and, and muddy that a little bit ends up being really interesting because it makes understood rounds where you know more or less what's going to happen. Uh, it still makes individual, individual tricks matter because you care about the overarching round structure of the game. And I think the Fox in the Forest is one of the games that I've played in sort of the modern board game space that sells to me the importance of rounds um, and helps me appreciate that you can build a really sort of small, you can build a small game with a simple, simple core loop and then add a meaningful round structure and sort of turn that on its head. Yeah, that's really that's really interesting. The other thing that I think that the scoring system allows is sort of, you know, and, and you're getting to it with the bluffing. It's like, if you can bluff in a game, it allows like a really fun uh, extra element on top of that, which is like uh, how how you can like sell bluffs or or not. And I, this is something that people definitely disagree on. Like if it's okay to even do in a game, which it would be, for example, you play a card uh, hoping your opponent beats you, and then they do take the trick, and you go, "Oh no, <laughs> what a mistake I've made!" You know, to make to like mislead your opponent, and some people think that's not okay at all. I love that. Yeah. That's something I, you know, uh, think is is a really important and fun thing in in games and, and specifically in card games like that. Um, and so, if you know, you're just both you are just trying to get as many points as possible in a given round, like that would be that wouldn't work out at all. So I, I just like that the scoring system enables those kind of fun moments. Is that something yeah. you do in your plays? Definitely. I feel like it's interesting when people say they don't like when people do that, because in a way what you're doing in that situation is just amplifying an emotional reaction that you would have, right? Like if you're just playing a normal game, you're going to react to a situation. So are they saying you don't want to have any emotion in your play? They would just like to be playing against a robot, right? And I guess it's different I when think... you're saying it to intentionally mislead. Uh, but I, like... Well, <sighs> to, so I mean, we... We got into a really interesting discussion in this in in the KeyForge podcast and on the KeyForge Discord that we're both members of, which is like if you're like trying to get your opponent to like kill a certain creature by like hovering your hand over it, like as if you're already gonna remove it because it's like such an obvious choice and like little flourishes like that where you're trying to manipulate your opponent into doing something that isn't just like directly applicable to the game. Like I think that's totally fine and fun and enriches the gaming experience for all but i kind of understand why people don't like that and i think it's inherently the same thing here when if you're you know you're giving a false emotional reaction to give false information to your opponent and to me that is like a pump fake right it's like as core to the game as like pretending to shoot the ball in basketball to make the opponent fly by and give you a wide open jump shot definitely and i feel like you hit on it perfectly and it just depends on the magic circle that you're playing in right so if the other player is down and has a sort of tacitly agreed to those rules then it like enriches the game space i will say i would love to be able to do that more but my wife can tell when i'm lying so easily that i i like i can't pump fake her anymore with those sorts of plays so i have to be even more subtle and hope to muddy the waters that way um or like make in-game strange plays like just doing weird stuff like leading a suit with like a five a six at the outset it's like you're not committing one way or the other just to get information and it's like what are you doing why are you making these weird choices to throw her off a little bit that way and i love that so the game like mechanically allows for that too i guess too to to pitch you an idea jake something that i i want to will sort of take this little detour and then come back but i think that the fox in the forest employs a sort of rules slash game design uh idea that I haven't heard discussed elsewhere that I want to talk about. And I think it makes the, it will fit the conversation well. And the idea here that I've come up with is called a rules turn. So a rules turn is a rule that is structured in a way that you, you say a rule and you give the whole rule. So in the Fox in the forest, 
you are trying to win tricks in the game, but if you win too many, you actually lose. So that but is the signifier in a rules turn that helps you, that shifts the, the core gameplay on its head. So another example would be in High Society, a game by Rainer Knizia, you are trying to win the most cards, but if you spend too much money, you automatically lose. If you're the player who spent too much money, you automatically lose the game. I think Rainer Knizia games do this the most. Um, like in Tigris and Euphrates, you're trying to get the most influence cubes, but your score with the fewest cubes is your overall score. Things like that. And I think the rules structure that way, I don't fully understand why they make for such interesting game spaces, but I think those rules turns can make for really interesting play spaces. And the Fox in the Forest is a good example of this. Yeah, that's a really cool uh, idea. You came up with that? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think I think that's I was just trying to like understand like how much credibility to give this idea. Like I don't, you know, before I just trash it, I want to make sure it's not like coming from like Ryan or Kinesi. No, no, not at all. I think it's interesting and, and to me what that just points out is something we've gotten in, in a lot of our discussion of uh, of decision space, which is that like the interesting thing most often is decisions when there's a trade-off. And yeah. when you have a rules turn as you're outlining it, like that is an inherent trade-off core to the game itself, you know? Yeah, totally. Uh, so I think, I think to, you know, maybe that speaks to why that's so interesting. I love, too, that Fox in the Forest um, makes the, the scoring system evocative. They didn't have to add a description of what different scores, uh, trick, trick amounts or trick bands means, but the fact that like zero to three, if you get zero to three tricks, you're quote unquote humble. Well, your opponent is greedy. Um, or if you're somewhere in between, you're just defeated and victorious. I think that that adds a lot to the game and shows a level of understanding of like what, imbuing emotion and then allowing the players to run with that becomes so fun. Like I love sort of pointing at my wife and be like, oh, you're so greedy. Uh, and it sort of invites you to have that, that type of banner. I've had that same experience and like, I'll, I would say like, I agree. It definitely makes it more emotionally evocative in, in the sense that like, it is just so incredibly salt inducing <laughs> to the greedy person. Like not only did you get the fewest points, you got zero points where your opponent got all the points and the game is making fun of you and insulting you. Yeah. Right. Like, so I mean, like, I think it definitely makes it emotionally evocative, but, and it's funny but it could like legitimately trigger people. <laughs> like, yeah, I do definitely. the thing where I'm like, oh, I'm so, I'm so humble. Obviously not like the most humble. Like that would of course <laughs> be somebody else. Cause like, I, I wouldn't say I'm the most humble and my <laughs> wife is just like pulling her damn hair out. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that the, the rules invite this. Like they want you to be playful that way. Otherwise they wouldn't yeah. have said that. So, so that's another way in which not just mathematically, but just on a, on a sheer like, I don't know, linguistic level, the game's inviting you to play in that way. And it didn't have to, but it does. Right. It's making it a, a story. It's leaning into the storytelling elements that all games have. And, you know, in, in many ways, I think trick-taking games are, you know, pretty far from, you know, as far from like a storytelling game as you could get on that spectrum, right? These are mathy games, but they've, they've you know, really taken important steps. And I think really valuable steps to to make the story in this game come alive in, in a way that would be so easy to have the same version of this game same rules that just feels like you know you're playing with a standard deck of cards totally very mathematical and rote the, the whole the whole ship here seems to be shaking a little Whoa. bit and i can feel feel some some <laughs> uneasiness in your voice so maybe we can jump into some turbulence uh, this is your captain speaking. We are now approaching a little bit of turbulence. Please return to your seats and buckle your safety belts. Uh, so I guess this is kind of the my show at this point, since you've given this game a perfect 10 out of 10. Um, but I, I do have a couple of concerns, I think, um, that, that, you know, one of which is what we've already brought up, that, like, I think because this is a strictly two player game that is so skill intensive mm. um, that it is, it's, it's difficult to have like a super balanced meta between any two people. Um, and it sounds like, you know, you have one 
which is great. And I can definitely see how like satisfying and fun that would be. Um, but my experience playing with my wife was when we first broke this game out, I probably played it, you know, 15 to 20 times. Um, she won the first three rounds or four rounds. And I just had no idea what was happening in the game. Like I was just learning it. It just felt like when I first learned this game, like not playing trick games, it felt super random, mm-hmm. right? I was just like playing it. It took me a little while to like really start grokking any strategic elements of it. Um, but in the, you know, and then it was really a game we were enjoying and it was like 50-50. Uh, but now I've won the last like, I think five or six games that we've played and she's just not having fun with it anymore. Mm. Uh, so doesn't have, you know, and if we played, you know, 20 more games, you know, perhaps she would surpass me and we would come to some kind of equilibrium, but she's just not really interested in playing anymore. Last time we played, she kind of said that she wasn't having fun with it. And uh, I, you know, being the more interested gamer in our household, like the last thing I want to do is like put games that Bridget isn't enjoying in front of her. You know, I want her to keep wanting to play games. So that's kind of like the death knell for me for this game. And then because I've already had that like learning experience with it, like I think it'd be really fun to play with you and maybe some other people, but I I couldn't really break it out with other friends who, you know, theoretically friends will come around at some point again in the future. And I wouldn't be able to break (laughs) this out with them, I think, and have a very fulfilling game either. So I think like, and, and, that's not like a problem with the game, but just like know that, you know, it's kind of like chess in that way. And I think it, it's kind of suffers from the same kind of thing chess does in that regard. Um, and then I guess the, another kind of issue I have with it is, and you said you think the scoring is really interesting. I do too, but I don't necessarily like the round scoring as mm. much. I just think going all the way up to 21 points seems like, frequently will be in a situation where you will get to like the last round is almost inevitable like you almost don't need to play it because like somebody is like one or two points away from winning and the other person is many more than that so like the only reason to play the game then would be to like try and like literally skunk your opponent which Mm -hmm. i think is like nearly impossible to do if your opponent is playing to like get only one or two points, like that's almost always achievable. So like three rounds feels kind of like a perfect or, Mm -hmm. you know, but the fact that it frequently goes to four and it's like more like to me, that last round, I guess feels like very procedural Hmm. uh, or would make maybe somebody want, maybe at that point somebody should just concede, but then that can feel lackluster to people. And then I think, so So sometimes I guess like to me, it just feels like it goes a little long for what it is. Uh, and then, yeah, and I guess the last thing I would say just for me, like I think there are like a lot of things that are really great about this game, but like it's definitely not the game like I personally have had just like the most fun with. Um, you know, I think I, I would I would recommend this to other couples especially you know if like you want to like this could be our game you know we'll just play this game a lot and i think that would be a really you know especially if you like trick-taking games like that is something that could really work for you but like if i ask myself like is this a game that i will frequently like want to pull off the shelf like if my wife's like yeah we'll play any i'll play anything whatever you want like i just don't see myself going to this game because while it's like good and I can acknowledge that it just doesn't leave me feeling super fulfilled. Yeah. That's, is, re- that's like my rating. Right. Yeah. That's super interesting. I think it makes a lot of sense too, that the game has sort of played out for the two of you and you're sort of done with it. Um, and it, it strikes me. It's so interesting to me that you brought up the term unbalanced because right before I, we started recording, I said to Maya, I was like, is there anything that you like what stands out to you most about Fox in the Forest? Like, why is it something that has been living on our kitchen table? We, we talked about recording this two like almost two weeks ago, Jake, and the game has just kind of lived on our table for two weeks and we'll just play whenever we have like 20 minutes. Uh, sometimes, by the way, too, the rule book says if you want a shorter game, you can play to, I think it's 15 or a longer game, 35. I can't remember if I have those right. But so we've been playing like, let's play longer games, let's play shorter games. Uh, and it's kind of just lived there. And she said 
that she felt it's one of the most balanced games she's played. And that's something she loves about it, which that's just the testament to what you're talking about of us being so evenly matched in our trick taking. Yeah. Yeah. And I definitely think this game is, is balanced, right? The unbalanced would be between like the two Players. players of the game. Yeah. There are plenty of games that are unbalanced and feel better for the losing player Mm. like or sorry like unbalanced between the people like unbalanced skill level uh and and it feels a lot better to lose because you you know if you're playing like a game of azul you've like built out your board you know you've like accomplished something whereas like this game you it's just like there's nothing to like admire admire feel like you've worked towards and in fact like the game might also just be like telling you like stop being so greedy stop being so greedy (laughs) like yeah you know so so i think that might be particularly why like bridget burn out on it quicker than other games that's interesting if i i have one point of turbulence even though it's a 10 out of 10 for me and that's that i think that the suits are the design of them are slightly more complex than I would like them to be just based on like classic card game suits. And I think that they could have gone with a, a simpler graphically designed key, a simpler graphically designed belt and a simpler graphically designed moon. And it would have fit sort of within the classic card style a little bit better, but that's like such a base level nitpick that it feels silly to even say. Yeah, it does. We're cutting that. No, It's like there's nitpicks and then there's and then there's that. I like, oh, I don't know, Brenda. That's not, starting to sound like a nine point nine five. But I think that's a testament to just how much I enjoy the game. <laughs> no, totally. Yeah. Do you do you feel yeah. the ships? Well, I think of... the suits look cool. <laughs> I will say I love the art in the game. I feel like the art is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, the individual art. Do you have anything else yeah. on this bumpy, turbulent moment, or do you want to slip back into card by? No, card? I'm, I'm ready to. I'm ready to to get back into. Let's get into the card by card, and uh, you know, probably just pretty quick on them. But I, I think there's some really interesting decisions that they bring up. So, so instead of going bottom to top, I thought it'd be interesting to go top to bottom in terms of value. So. Let's start with the monarch. The monarch is the eleven that says when you lead this card, your opponent uh, has. They have a card of that suit. They have to play their highest one or they have to play a one. Do you think that this is, and as a preview, I'm just going to ask you this every time. Do you think that this is the most powerful card in the game? I do not think this is the most powerful card in the game. I think this is okay, a powerful either. card, but not. you don't either? <laughs> no, I'm just going to ask you that every time because okay. I want to see if we agree on which one's the most powerful. <laughs> Interesting. So the Monarch does a lot of things. One of the most important things that it does for you is it gets you information. Mm-hmm. Almost almost always. But if they play a Swan, uh, it can be sort of this devastating turn. And I think one thing that the Fox in the Forest does really well, uh, one of the ways that you can come back in a trick-taking game is for exchanging uh, value in a way. It's almost like a tempo trade, right? Like if you play the 11 and I play a one, the average value of cards in our hand is probably become closer. If I have a on average lower value hand and you have an on average higher value hand in terms of sheer value, if I can make exchanges that are disparate like that, I can bring the band closer. So if I'm trying to turn a hand that's like, I'm going to win just below half the tricks, a play like that can really even my ability to come back. Um, Interestingly, in our meta, the Monarchs get played really early pretty often just because it's a good way to force someone's hand and see what their highest in something is Mm. if they don't have a swan. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's probably the card that I lead with most often. I think another interesting thing about it is... uh, So, yeah, I guess we'll get get into the the nine in, in one second, but the nine is one of the cards that can frequently beat an 11. Yeah. So you can play an, a th- an 11 into this, into a situation where your opponent can actually uh, beat you fairly often, or may even be forced to beat you. So that kind of can also be really interesting and enable like humble strategies where you're throwing away an 11 on purpose, you know, the highest value card in the game. Uh, and, and forcing your opponent to win a trick, um, you know, that could be something like a huge positive swing for you to really facilitate that humble strategy. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think you said something interesting that I want to highlight too there, which is that the monarch is a card you like to lead with most often. And I think one thing that's great about the individual powers in the Fox in the Forest is that there's certain cards that are on average better as leads and on better as follows. And that's really interesting because in a lot of trick-taking games, for the most part, cards are cards. Not always, but for the most mm-hmm. part. And having that um, sort of differing value based on your position is is very interesting in terms of decisions. So that's let's pivot down to the witch then. So the witch is the nine. And this is the card that says, if there's no other witch in play, it counts as the trump suit. So you play it to follow, let's say the, the decree, the trump suit is a key. Uh, Jake, you play the, the 11 moon. So the... The trump is a key. I have the moon witch. I can follow with the witch and then I'll win the suit. If you haven't played the fox in the forest, you're probably like, this is mind melting. Um, The witch, I think, is also a super interesting card because it's very powerful. Do you think this is the most powerful card in the game? I do not, Brendan. Do you? I I do not think this is the most powerful card in the game. But I I do think it's pretty powerful and pretty interesting and shifts the, uh, the feel of the game and helps it not always feel like you know exactly how hands are going to play out because sometimes uh, if your witch matches the trump suit it's significantly less powerful than if it doesn't match the trump suit and that's pretty interesting Mm. yeah that's interesting i think astute listeners may also realize that we skipped the 10 um and so you know just to just to reiterate the all the even numbered cards in the game are work the same but don't have any additional power so only half of the deck has these or a little more than half i suppose has these powers um the, i think the nine is fine I and mean, it's kind of, it's maybe perhaps like a little less interesting and I, I would actually perhaps argue that it might be one of the worst powers because there are many times when you wish the nine was just a regular nine and it puts you in a position Mm. where like you have to win. Um, So, I mean, I think that's something to just be like aware of that the more nines you have in your hand, like it can put you in a position where you basically have no option, but to try and win a lot of tricks. And, and that can, uh, you know, if your opponent's trying to go humble or, or, you know, you have an otherwise bad hand, it can put you in a really bad situation. I think almost as often as it helps you if not more so. So yeah. I don't really like when I have nines in my hand. It's interesting. Yeah, it's a powerful upside, but a potential powerful downside. Because I feel like it restricts my, you know, the decision space Your strategy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I also, since you mentioned that ev- only some of the cards, only the odd-valued cards are powers, I think really quickly this would be a good time to mention that I think that that's brilliant. It gives players just some, enough of a break. If every card was a power... This game would be so horrible. It would be way too much. Um, and also, I think it's brilliant that the the suits are layered on top of the powers and that they didn't decide that every suit should have its own set of unique powers. Um, I think that makes the game so much more interesting. Yeah, I, I, te- I, I agree with you, but... Uh, I mean, I'm pretty. I'm also excited for the inevitable expansion where it brings powers to the other half of the deck. And Swap then the, it. And then the third expansion where you draft sleeves to customize oh your deck even further. <laughs> <laughs> Drafting sleeves for a trick-taking game sounds amazing. Um, the fox in the forest on Jupiter in a different <laughs> galaxy. <laughs> I love it. Okay, so the next card in numerical order is the is the treasure, the seven. So this is the card that when the winner of the, when you win a trick. Uh, with a seven in it, you get one point. So it doesn't matter that you played the seven. It matters if you win the trick with the seven in it. Do you think this is the most powerful card in the game? I do not think this is the most powerful card <laughs> neither, in the game. Neither do I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I think that similarly to the nines, the seven are like kind of like workhorse designs and that they add a lot to the game, but I don't always want to have them in my hand. I feel like sometimes sevens can feel like a problem I have to solve rather than a tool that I get to use. Yeah. Yeah, I think the sevens, like the fact that you can get one point by winning a seven um, really 
creates interesting situations. It can also sometimes lead to those problematic scoring situations where the last round is just like inevitable, uh, you know, just going through the motions. So, so I don't know, maybe maybe I'm a little bit conflicted on this, but I think the fact, just the, the fact alone that like there are these cards that's like, okay, but I really like, I want to, this is the strategy I'm going for, whether it's to be victorious or humble, but like, in that, can I also achieve winning these more sevens uh, to get even more points? It is kind of like a fun puzzle to work out uh, and does kind of create some more interesting decisions. I, I'm glad, I guess overall, I'm glad they're there. I'm really glad they're here too, because I think if being the sevens being present in the game means that at some core level, it's it incentivizes winning within a round. The, mm-hmm. the balance of like you want to be victorious more often than you want to be purely humble and win no treks at all, it leans a little bit more towards being victorious because getting more points from the treasures is good. And I think that slight imbalance makes it less common that you would be humble and makes it more exciting when it does happen. And I think that's good for the overall health of the game, that winning is slightly incentivized because of the sevens, even though the greater overall points don't necessarily lean totally that way i think when you average it out it does too um but i think the sevens are important and then also when a round is basically fundamentally decided i do think that it can cause overarching issues having the sevens being present can make a a hand that's almost solved still interesting because like in bridge sometimes within any given hand hand exactly like a, a given trick can matter even if like okay i've already lost this yeah Sometimes in bridge, you'll get to a point where uh, the player who they're just they're leading and they're playing the dummy hand will just like literally play down their cards and you'll skip like the last three turns because you just know that you're going to win because you have the the highest value cards in a row of the trump suit, right? Like I have the the mm-hmm. king, the queen and the jack and I know that uh, there's no chance I can lose suits. And I think that overall that's kind of boring and I'm glad that's not in the fox in the forest because it's usually tense down to the last card. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so coming up next, the the humble woodcut. The woodcut says when you play this, draw one card and then discard any one card from your hand to the bottom of the deck face down. Do you think this is the most powerful card in the game, Jake? I do. I do. Interesting. Think so. Okay, great. <laughs> do you think so? <laughs> I, I think that I do not think this is the most powerful, but I do think this is a very powerful card. I think and, and perhaps the reason I think this is because it it works speaks to my strategy which is like or just how i not strategy but how i play this game where it's like it's the opposite of the witch which restricts your ability the woodcutter gives you the most maneuverability of any card to uh shift your strategy if if things are going wrong like perhaps you're starting out thinking like you have a really good hand and you're going to win a lot of tricks and then you're surprised to find that you know your your opponent has taken out a lot of your better cards um, through some variety of means like the woodcutter offers you an ability to switch a card in your hand that could be good for potentially a lower one um so so yeah that maneuverability it also keeps that information secret from your opponent so it's an, a card that's i guess the only card that's giving you more new information and not giving your opponent any uh where it's like you know like you talked about how the 11 does give you some information, but that's of course like information only your opponent already has. Yeah. Like now you've actually seen more cards than your opponent, which in such a high skill level game, I think is huge. Yeah, I, I think you sort of nailed my thoughts on the woodcut too. I'd love playing hands of two or three woodcuts because when you get all of that flexibility, it can be really powerful. Um, and I love that the woodcut enables both being humble and being victorious. It makes both strategies uh, potentially more viable. And I think that's great. Um, and then, like you mentioned, it highlight highlighting the information aspect of it is really important as well. The fact that you get more information than your opponent, I think that the woodcut does so much and it's such a smart card design overall. Um, also, the fact that it doesn't force your hand, that you don't have to discard, that can be, I, I just think that's really great that they give you that flexibility to play it out how you will. That brings us to the next card, which is the three, the fox. This card I do think is the most powerful card yeah. in the game. 
when you yeah like when i said no other one could I, I i played my hand right you knew i didn't think this one was the most powerful. Um, <laughs> i don't know i was maybe like maybe you're just operating on like such a higher level of understanding than me but <laughs> no so the fox is the card that says when you play this card you may exchange a card from your hand with the decree card so it allows you to manipulate the trump suit within a given round of the game i love that this card lets you it actually makes you feel cunning like a fox um, and I think the reason for me why this is the most powerful card is because this is the card that can affect the most other turns the most dramatically. So like the woodcut can allow you to play out a strategy more effectively, but it's usually only affecting the power of one card. Whereas a fox played correctly can increase the overall power of more cards in your hand or weaken the overall power of more cards in your opponent's hand. Um, based on the information that you have on what's probably left the most dramatically. Um, and if you can compound the effects of, of two foxes, that can be really, really powerful, especially if the decree card starting off is a very strong card that you would like access to. Yeah, totally. I think I think it's like the most skill testing card in the game too. Like being able to figure out when the right moment to switch the suit is, especially, you know, it, it could be obvious if it's like, oh, that's a really good card. I want that. Yeah. you know that then you can just do that uh but even then you know perhaps that's presenting your opponent with an opportunity to win an easy trick um because it has a, a low base power um you know which makes it a little bit less flexible in, in terms of actually winning suits um so you, you might have to like factor that in with your thinking of like minus one but then i'll be able to change the trick to give me like a plus two or three uh, just as you're like doing the mental arithmetic of how many tricks you're likely to be able to win, uh, so I found I find myself like having difficulty on playing it right, choosing the right card to play and when. So perhaps that's why I don't think it's as powerful as you, just because like I don't, I'm probably not maximizing mm -hmm. the value of it as as much as the woodcutter, which is pretty obvious. Yeah, and I think you mentioning too, like even if you just want the decree, like the timing of the fox is so important, like knowing when it's going to have the greatest impact. And I also, I think it's really interesting that the fox is a card that's more powerful on the follow, um, but still mm -hmm. strong on the lead. And it's more powerful on the follow because generally you can, if your opponent plays a, a card, you follow their suit, right? Let's say they play a moon. You follow with the fox that's matching the, the moon and then you shift the suit. Or if you don't have any cards left of moons and you're able to play a bell and then swap the decree right. into the bell, it can just be, that's just like a blowout. And that feels so good. Totally. Okay, so that leaves one final card, which is the swan, the one. I What are your thoughts on the swan trick? Yeah, I don't know. So the swan uh, says if you play this and lose the trick, you lead the next trick. Um, swans come out often when as a follow to your opponent playing an 11. Um, so I mean, that's just an interesting dynamic of the card. So it doesn't give you a lot of choices. I think it can be huge um, because... You know, I it, if it's not the second most powerful card to me, it's probably the third. And I think the reason for that is because it can be like, like this game is all about, to me, it's all about like tempo and who's controlling what, when. Like if you're leading, your ability to influence the state of the game is so much greater than the person following. So choosing when to play ones to give yourself the opportunity to lead a trick, it, it, I think is is often the difference in the round. Like, cause if you doing it right away, your opponent is still going to have a lot of options left in their hand to maybe like take some of that back. Whereas if you can choose the right moment, then perhaps then you'll have the ability to lead for the remainder. Um, yeah. I, I think, I think it, it, it's another skill testing one too. I totally agree. This is another skill testing one. I also think that it's very interesting because I think one thing that's important about trick-taking games that we've been talking about a lot is how important information is. Trick-taking games are fundamentally, the more information you have, the better decisions you can make. So I think in some ways, there's definitely times when you need to be leading, but following can be really rough. Or following can feel very powerful because you get the information of the card that your opponents played. So in some ways, to me, the swans effect feels like a downside for being able to play a really low-value card and sort of sandbag in that way. Um, so I found that swans can be similar to the treasure they, they can be really beneficial, but they can also be a, a strong downside that you have to play around because sometimes mm -hmm. you just want to follow, um, and knowing when you can get the swan out of your hand. Also, if you're trying to be humble 
and your delta hand of three swans, that can feel great. Just like, you know, you have three guaranteed losses. Like, oh yeah. But yeah, but at the same time, it can mess you up at the end of the game. If you have a swan and now you have to lead. And if your opponent doesn't have anything in that suit, it's like, well, I guess you win again. Yeah, sure. (laughs) That's also just another one of those just like gut punch moments where it's just like your opponent plays something that they're sure that they're going to lose with. And you're just like, oh, congratulations. Like you've won that trick. And it's like, no, totally. Especially if they've set it up by kind of bluffing that they're out of that that uh suit in a way um or maybe that they have a higher value card than or a lower value card than you might think there's a lot of room to like subtly communicate information and then subvert it and i love that also for final thoughts on these powers i think that one thing i really love about fox in the forest and its design is that they decided to name these powers these powers didn't have to have names Um, But by giving them names, I think that they make the act of playing a trick-taking game more accessible because for some people, uh, like card counting is just an important skill in trick-taking games. That's kind of partially the the game is like understanding what cards have been played and what are still out there. And by adding in these evocative names to certain cards, I think for people whose minds aren't as numerically tilted, but maybe more... um, just like conceptually, I think it makes that card counting potentially easier because you link it to an actual power that's happened. Mm-hmm. So I've found that my wife, she's way better at just like strictly card counting. But for me, it can be easier while playing the Fox in the Forest for me to do that because I almost always know if like the 11 Monarch has been played. Whereas if we're playing Spades, sometimes I'll forget like uh, any given card has been played. And she'll be like, why do you do that? Like you knew this card was played. And I was like, ah, actually didn't I forgot. Uh, <laughs> but with the Fox in the Forest, Jen- Generally, I'm able to remember a little bit easier, at least the powers, because yeah. of the evocative names. And that's cool to me. Totally. Yeah. So, and I, I just like how simple they are, too, right? Like, yeah. all of these are one sentence. Um, you know, and it's just it's just quick. Like, it, it doesn't interrupt the flow of play. And if, like, the flow of play of this... Like, the flow of play in a trick-taking game has to be snappy and quick. Yeah. And if it, if it slows down at all, that's just going to be a bad experience every time. So I think they're smart not to overcomplicate things. Hence why we were joking about the expansions being such a terrible idea. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, though there is a, there's a follow-up game, the Fox in the Forest Duet, which I think is a funny name for a two-player trick-taking game follow-up. But it's a co-op game. Mm-hmm. It's a co-op trick-taking game, which I guess is similar to the crew, but just for two players. So that's one that I'm curious about taking a peek at in the future. Um, but I yeah, guess if, with... if anyone's played that and wants to share thoughts on Fox in the Forest or Fox in the Forest Duet, please let us know. You can uh, reach out to us on Twitter at Decision Spa. That's Decision S-P-A. Uh, or, or leave a review or a comment wherever you're listening to this podcast. Yeah, we would love to to hear, hear your thoughts. Uh, we haven't gotten any official reviews on iTunes yet or... Uh, sort of on the podcatchers out there. So if you want to be the first person and you're you're a fan of the show, we'd love to hear from you. We're still trying to grow the podcast uh, as much as we can. And we're really thankful for all you who have given us feedback so far and are out there listening. Uh, sure. Do you have any closing thoughts on Fox yeah. and the Forest, Jake? So my final thought is like, I think the difference in our reviews after talking about it, you know, we, we came away with kind of different overall conclusions, but it seems like we really think about this game similarly. Like we agree a lot more than we disagreed as we were talking through the decisions and how fun and or engaging they are. Um, but just, you know, just the whole package to me left me feeling a little bit lackluster in a way that it left you feeling like totally fulfilled and wanting to keep playing more and more. And I think, you know, that's just a good lesson about, you know, the subjectivity in game reviews, right? Uh, all we can do is, is kind of uh, think critically about this game, play it, and then report back on our experience. And it seems like the biggest difference in how we interpret this was just, you know, in our home meta and, and how that shook out. Yeah, definitely. I think that it's also it's also interesting from a decision space reminder that different players have different experiences and tolerances for the amount of decisions that they're given and how the those decisions are perceived can be just as important as the consequences of you've talked a lot about perceived balance is is basically equal to balance and i think perceived decision space is basically equal to decision space and i think this discussion is a good reminder of that um because sometimes if your delta hand of cards and it 
feels like this is the one way to play it functionally for you in that moment. That's the one way to play it. And I think that the sort of uh, the way in which you get a hand of cards and that you're supposed to dictate it, that dictates your strategy and you can pivot. I think I love that about Fox in the Forest, but it's really interesting to me. And I could see how you could feel very rammed down a specific strategy based on your hand. And um, yeah, I think also one other destination or takeaway is I think that a lot of games are about building, building up and Fox in the Forest, I think, is a great example of a game where a decision space can get smaller and still be interesting. Yeah, well put. Um, and hopefully this discussion, whether you have played this game and agree with Brendan or play this and, and your feelings are more closer aligned to me, or if you haven't played this game at all, hopefully our discussion of the decisions in it uh, give you uh, some further understanding or, or, or some idea about whether or not this might be a decision space that you would enjoy to exist within. Totally. And I guess with that, if you are one of those players who is tracking closely along with decision space and you want to have experienced the games that we are talking about, next week on decision space, Jake and I are going to tackle into a big one. We're headed to the the next frontier after the, the underwater cities. We're going to Mars. We're going we're gonna to dive into terraforming Mars. A game literally that could not be any less about building cities under the sea. <laughs> so give that a play. And uh, there's a, there's an app implementation. If, you, if you're stuck at home and you don't have folks to play with, but you want to give that a go, that's how Jake and I are going to be playing it primarily. So um, yeah, I think with that, give us a follow on Twitter at Decision Spot, like Jake said. Tell all your friends about Decision Space. Tell tell the person at the grocery store if you who you're running into about Decision like, Space. Like, subscribe, ring the bell, baby. <laughs> and uh, with that, we'll see you. We'll see you next time. Bye. You are now exiting the Decision Space. Thanks for listening. Please take care and enjoy the rest of your game. Mm-hmm.